Hello and welcome to Darker Days Radio and this is Darkling number... I'm trying to think which Darkling we're on. Guys, you want to have a guess on what Darkling we're on? Sorry, I, it's completely gone out of my head the moment I uh, introdu- did the introduction. Um, um, 23, aren't we or something? Because we've got so many things going out, um, at this very moment Mike is sorting out... Uh, putting up uh, the next Dark Ages Darkling. Um, so, uh, yeah. I will get to the number in a minute. How is everyone? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, uh, that's James, obviously. Uh, this is Chris hello. speaking. This is the most <laughs> unordered introduction ever as we work out the number for it. We'll just fly by the seat of our pants here. And, of course, Steve is with us, as always, from uh, the Royal Isles of England, where there is a jubilee going on currently. Yeah, well, she's not my queen. I'm Welsh through and through. (laughs) (laughs) Right, fair enough. Um, Cool. Uh, Obviously, we're doing uh, part three of our uh, Chronicle Design Darkling series, Um, and as I said, we've got the next part of the Dark Ages uh, Darkling series going up that Steve has been recording with Adrian. Um, we've also had quite a lot of... We've had... Not a lot, but we've had some feedback on all the Darklings. Yeah, we're on Darkling... Technically, we're on Darkling 24. So 23, you will see very soon, listeners, is Dark... Well, before this is is uh, the Dark Ages one. And so we are on 24. Um, yeah, uh, we've had a few questions from people, um, and we'll cover those today, and we are covering the particular topic of designing an intrigue, amongst other things. Um, essentially the whole plan for this is to look at how, what type of steps and, uh, things to be aware of and things to think about in order to start stringing together a series of stories or gaming sessions or episodes uh, to create your chronicle. Um, I think this is possibly one of the, the one of the next most difficult things to do once you've determined what type of chronicle you want to run and the setting, uh, because there's various different things you need to be uh, aware of or to do when uh, setting it up. Uh, so yeah, before we get into that, um, is there anything else we got? Uh, anyone else? What anyone wants to say? Uh, what what we've been up to? I've not really been doing any gaming recently. I've not played on anything uh, gaming wise. Um, just trying to finish off the uh, Venice ebook, um, which is uh, I've got like a few NPCs left to do. I've got um, what are they? Hobgoblins. I've got a few hobgoblins I want to uh, write up that have a Venetian theme, and then pretty much it's done other than writing up a SAS document for it, which will take a while. Um, Steve, what gaming type stuff you've been up to, or other interesting things? Well, I'm still hammering out my uh, classic World of Darkness Vampire the Masquerade campaign on a Wednesday night for my friends. We've had a couple of players for different reasons leave, but oddly enough, we've had some new players turn up and fill their shoes immediately, so that's quite interesting. Ah, classic. Brilliant. Apart from that, not a lot, really. Not a lot. Yeah. And James, you're okay, other than 
of various other personal things, but what type of games you've been playing on recently? Anything interesting or? Yeah, um, I've been I've been looking at Secret World. Uh, I've been on a couple of the beta uh, the beta events for that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean I've played on that as well, of course. Um, we, we actually had a little bit of a go together, and that was was very interesting. Um, it's nice to see a game with puzzles that actually gets you thinking and some really to difficult puzzles in places as well. Yeah, um, that was that was really good, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I've um, you linked to my review for it on my Tumblr. Yep, um, that's right. But I'm gonna go into probably a more in-depth analysis of that when I uh, when it actually comes out. Now I'm gonna have a lot more time on my hands. Um, and I've also been playing Dragon's Dogma. Ah, uh, yes. Which is almost exactly the game I have been waiting for for years and years and years. Um, almost, but not quite. <laughs> um, but it's it's really good fun. I'm enjoying running around and climbing up monsters and chopping them to bits. Um, and it's it's very bizarre to have a um, a very Western RPG come from a Japanese developer. Oh, yeah. It is quite, yeah, because obviously you showed me the demo when you were sitting over at my place, and yeah, it had a, having quite a Western look, but yet, um, you explained it's very similar to Monster Hunter in the uh, gameplay of it, so. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, been, uh, that's been really good fun. I'm trying to think of other interesting things that have been popping up, obviously we'll cover the same amount of stuff on uh, the main show, but um, I think the interesting stuff is, there's been more, uh, there's been more blog posts about Mummy the Curse, which I think the last one was it was interesting and also difficult to quite comprehend exactly what's going on, but there's obviously some interesting concepts of what magical power that uh, these mummies will be wielding so it'll be interesting to see how that fits in with the New World of Darkness cosmology Um, and I think the other thing I've seen a lot of seen lots of various posts about and that's uh it's intriguing me a little is the next version of D&D because it seems to be that they're making this D&D to be a bit more I don't know putting the putting the gameplay more into the players and the GM's hands and basically telling you to just do what you feel is right and you don't need to roll for everything so I don't know what's going on with that it seems like an alien beast of a of a of a D and D, so I'm kind of watching how that goes because I feel a little burnt by Fading Suns. I still want to do some uh, I still want to do some fancy roleplay, but Fading Suns, uh, not Fading Suns, uh, Exalted. Sorry, Exalted. Fading Suns is another issue entirely I can speak of, but Exalted I feel a bit burnt by because um, I still feel like I want to play in that setting, but it just gets too clunky when you want your char- your player characters to like fight against forty or more things and and also the way the pow- the the powers in that game are set up it gets a bit clunky um so yeah i want to i want a fantasy setting that kind of works for me and so we'll see how the next D&D works and how that fits with say um uh, what's it called dark sun uh it's a which is quite an interesting fantasy setting for it anyway i think that's enough general idle chit-chat and general shit that we talk about here. Um, so, shall we go into the main topic then? Yes, indeed, let's. Yeah, let's do plan. this. Okay, so, 
Designing an intrigue. What the hell do I mean by that? Um, James, do you want to start? <laughs> what what things have you... Because you're right now looking at sort of setting up a game. So have you started to consider these type of issues? Um, yeah, I've been... I was thinking some on our... Uh, after our podcast last time, um, with the kind of outline of it. And I basically decided um, on taking like taking inspiration from the big struggles about the gentrification of Hamburg, mm-hmm. um, and I thought the Caesar's uh, some someone from the Caesar's throne trying to um, there's there's the area which is the Reeperbahn, which is yeah. uh, it used to be where they made all the rope. Turns out that's what the um, the name of the street is, but uh, that's turned into the red light district. And I was thinking that the Caesar Throne would basically be trying to take over the area to turn it into a theme park for sexual tourism. Yeah. Lovely. Because nothing nothing subdues the masses than uh, more than like sex when you want it. Like because hmm. um, there's always that comp- the uh, saying that you know the um, the reason anyone ever achieves the, all the breakthroughs and stuff is just to impress the opposite sex. Well, if you don't have to, because you can just go out and buy it, then why, why bother? Um, and um, so they would be looking to buy up large areas of the rape, um, St. Pauli and the Rape Barn. Uh, and as the mages, um, the player group, would be people who actually live in this area, because it's actually meant to be a cultural area as well, mm. uh, where a lot of the artists live, because there's lots of cheap housing. But when it becomes trendy, it becomes too expensive. So, um, yeah, that that was my kind of idea. And the the intrigue, I guess, is where the actual the parts of the idea, the parts of your plotline, kind of mesh together, and where they rub against each other. Yeah. Well, I was thinking. I mean, the steps I would be thinking from what you've said, uh, your next steps would be considering you know, which. Uh, of the Throne NPCs are say in charge of this and mm. the intrigue then is you have to get into the mindset of those NPCs and think what are the series of steps they need to do in order to you know in order for their plan to to uh, be played out and for them to achieve their goal and then you have to consider well what other Seers of the Throne NPCs would there be who would like to see the main, that, that main NPC fail and then you begin to create an intrigue which is based around the antagonists and then you can start to look at say your um, your pentacle mages and see well which groups of those which of those group are, uh, how much information do they have of what's going on who are putting the most effort into preventing that plan occurring, and uh, and also which which majors within that group will not want the plan to to be played out, but also want to take advantage of of the events of it, so that they can gain the upper hand over other pentacle majors. You know, it's it's as much as no one, as much as people may claim they they hate politics and so forth. All the any game like this, and World of games, being social games, do come down to politics and about 
And when I say politics, it's about who can get what out of what situation and can they get away with it? Um, so, uh, Steve, what do you think about design and intrigue? What, uh, what can you add to what we've already said and then, or, or elaborate on there? Or what's your view on, on design and intrigue? What's the main aim for it all? Okay, well, for me, I think the, the main intrigue is going to be at, at the essence, the story that's going to draw your players into your chronicle. This is the thing that's going to get them hooked. I want to know the outcome of this thing. Uh, the intrigue, the step-by-step kind of points, you can tie into what we were talking about last time with the uh, the null hypothesis, Yeah. where before you be, even begin introducing your player to it, it's just sit down and say, okay, then you have bad guy A that wants to do, uh, you know, nefarious plot one. Mm-hmm. What what did how does he go about that? Yeah, okay. in the in, and we're talking he everything he does just touches gold. You know, there's no hassles and there's no problems. He just does it. What are the points that go along there? And then just take a step back from that and say, okay, then well, there's point one. I could introduce the group there. I could introduce the group at then point two. The next stage of his plan, as more information is leaked out, and that's the times how you're going to get your group involved in this. Is these points can also lead to you to clues or breadcrumbs that can lead your group to the next part of the intrigue, which is a difficult thing sometimes. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's spot on. And I think one of the, um, one of the key, key steps is, is, is knowing what is the, the main uh, final goal of, of the intrigue. And, you know, again, it's getting the mindset of that antagonistic NPC and thinking, what the hell does he want? And what's, what... Uh, what events and what steps will he, he uh, be involved in to get to his goal? And I think in the storyteller section of the Changeling the Lost book, it gives the idea of like you you know where the start is, you know where the end is, and then you just need to fill out the bits in between. Um, and yeah, Steve, as you said with the the null hypothesis about you know working out where do the players then where do the players uh, Interact with the uh, with that series of events because obviously it's from that point on the the events following on from that that you've already written out will then be changed and or completely removed or and replaced by different events depending upon how the uh, players interact with it. And when we say people interact with that plot, it may not just be the player characters; it can also be other NPCs who are alerted to uh, to certain events and also would not like to see particular NPCs play out their their plans um, yeah I think that's the that's the um, the main aim of designing an intrigue but I think uh, the di- the next thing then is really um, really the nuts and bolts of putting it together as I said, you can you can lay out uh, quite a simplistic plan of these events, but then also sometimes it's quite difficult to see how you can modify or or what events should occur or may occur if you want to plan out a bit further. And I think that's where there are other techniques and tools that can uh, coming helpful. Um, so one of the other things I think that's important for when you're planning an intrigue is also uh, drawing up a web of intrigue um, 
people may have seen these in the back of books such as uh, the Chicago book for New World of Darkness or Chicago Chronicles for Classic World of Darkness. Um, so these are just a uh, list of names or uh, these are spider diagrams of of uh, groups or people within your setting who know of each other and interact with each other and the lines between them represent how they know each other or what they think about each other. So these lines have attached some descriptors uh, about whether so-and-so hates someone or or whether they know of them or whether they admire them or if they're an ally. And these these um, these webs of intrigue can be quite useful because they then offer you immediate information on on new plot ideas for the next session if events begin to you know events change drastically from your main intrigue um so i kind of compare this to like uh understanding how world war one broke out you know you only have to change all the uh countries by npcs and if one npc starts getting screwed over by the players he might turn to his ally who has access to different information different abilities and the players now have a new antagonist to deal with, a new uh, possibly uh, events to deal with that they don't see how they're connected, but then eventually do as they learn more and more about the intrigue and the uh, conspiracies and uh, connections between people. Does anyone want to comment some more on that one? Yeah, well, the, uh, the web of intrigue can also show you the feelings of people that you've not really considered. So yeah. You, uh, you have, say, in a New World of Darkness, you have, say, the Ordo Dracul, uh, the Atlantia Sanctum, and the Inviticus. The Inviticus and the Atlantia Sanctum invade, engage in some kind of political play. The way to be intrigue can also show you how the, uh, how the, uh, the uh, Order of the Dragon uh, can look at them and say, OK, then, well, how do I feel if the Inviticus take control or if the Atlantia Sanctum take control? And that's perfectly apparent straight away. So you can even let it kind of hint when players go and talk to other NPCs they're not involved in the actual main intrigue but how they feel about it and what their thoughts and feelings are to give your your setting a sense of depth also tying back into the intrigue as well is it can allow you to with the null hypothesis to continue the story even if the players do nothing yes they may hear about something oh there's a meeting going down oh great None of the players are like, oh, yeah, great, so what? We're not going to go. We're going to go here instead because this seems far more interesting. Okay. But then you know what's going to occur at that meeting between whichever groups are going to go there and the outcome of it. So the groups can then hear of the outcome of that and you still know what's going on without them. What your proposed scene one is the group goes to the, to the meeting. Well, they haven't even done that. Well, okay, then what's the outcome of that? And you can, you can say, okay, then, well, as the plot uh, advances the group can just ignore it as much as they want, but the situation's only going to get worse and worse and worse uh, until they begin to take notice of it, until it begins to affect them directly, which is a, another interesting technique. Yeah, I mean, it, it's by doing that and showing the, uh, showing the result, showing, showing the, the, the kind of the, the result of their inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's a very good lesson to players to interact with the plot rather than waiting for the plot to fall in their lap. I mean, this is the this is the difference of of uh, you know, 
you walk into a bar as the sun is setting and there's a group of adventurers there and some geezer turns up and tells you, there's a dungeon over here, go, go sort it out. Or you as a group of actual people are sitting around and then you suddenly get wind of, you hear a rumour about a plot and then you start looking at the rest of the information that you have learned over the series of the Chronicle and then you're like, hold on a minute, we maybe should go have a look at this and see if it's related to what issues we've had. And, you know, you're, you're putting the power back into the uh, players' hands. Um, James, uh, how, how about for you? I mean, you've obviously played in my own games, and I don't know, you've mostly seen this type of thing as a player, then. Um, yeah, um, like, the, the web of intrigue is, like, it's, I was quite, int- I, I thought it was quite interesting point because um, not only can you see maybe who would be affected, but say uh, players have killed an NPC. Like I've had this problem before when I've run things like D&D. Um, sometimes players turn around and they just flat out steamroll someone, um, so, someone that you weren't expecting. So you can see who you could maybe use to replace a pawn. If there's someone who would, um, who would have agreed maybe with the intentions of another character they might be able to get drawn into the, um, the plot. Mm-hmm. So you, you can maybe continue to have the story that you wanted just with different actors instead of um, the people you had originally planned. But I also like it as well because it, um, it's something that I actually do as a player. I try and figure out the relationships between the NPCs we meet because, I mean, I, I suppose this is my my metagamey kind of games mastery thing, but I quite I like to try and figure out like where plots are going. Um, I'll still blunder along with them regardless. Like if it's um, if it's me doing stuff in a um, a player mentality as opposed to a actually playing as my character, I just like to I like to get all the plot. Um, I was in a I was in a LARP for. Uh, World of Darkness, and I think the first week that it started, I turned up and I was just like, I'm following all of the plots, and our um, the guy who was running it, he gave me some bonus XP, but he asked me if I could lay off and leave something for everyone else to do. Because mm-hmm. following, yeah, you follow where things interconnected, and you're just like this, 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 is important. Um, I've babbled a bit there, haven't I? No, I no, mean, no. That's, all, <laughs> that's all good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's good to have a, your intrigue set up, but you've also got to have you know stuff there for players to do if they get a bit mm. stuck as well. And that, that's important because um, not only can players choose not to follow something because they think it's not interesting to their characters, or they're just uh, not interesting to them, or not interesting to their characters because you know they they may actually role play that. Why the hell would my character want to go to this event or or try yeah. and stop this? Um, you may even get the case where players find things a little difficult so that they instead don't even know what's going on because they haven't, they just haven't put the things together. Um, and this gets us into the issue of complexity, I feel, with, uh, with intrigues and the complexity of clues and the complexity of an intrigue. Um, I would, I don't know, I would say finding that middle ground is difficult and it's something that you 
you don't just write up an intrigue and you don't write up your, your, your plot and your mystery and just leave it as that. I think it has to constantly be in motion. And when I say motion, not just because you're, you're an asshole GM who goes, oh, damn, that's too easy for them. I'm going to change this. I think you just need to be aware of it because you want to make it fun. And the moment it's not being fun anymore, then you may actually have to either simplify things or make it a little bit more difficult. Um, because clues can clues can be really obscure and... Getting that balance is difficult. I think I pretty much nailed it in Changeling when uh, they they kind of suddenly worked out the connection between between things. Um, So I've got somewhere that my entire Changeling plot, and I think Emily nailed it in the end what exactly was going on. And that was about with my plan of games and sessions and so forth, with about two episodes left, if they didn't get involved with it, then it would be obvious what was happening and that they'd be obviously going into events without the uh, without the, the the advantage, whereas because of her puzzling, they had the advantage on knowing what to do. Um, so there is a definite, there is a definite issue of you can make things too complicated. Um, ooh, I don't know, James. How how did you feel about that with regard to say the vampire game? I know you you didn't play through all of it, but how did you feel with that in the vampire game with the complexity of things? Um, I mean, I I was there as you say only for like the start of it, but I could see that there was definitely something going on beyond beyond just the events that we'd been tasked with. And I was really interested in that. I mean, I, I was intentionally keeping my character very straightforward because mm-hmm. I was um, I was going very much for uh, a bit of a thug at the yeah. time. Um, <laughs> and, but I, yeah, I, I was trying to keep a, an eye on things. I, I was, we, were, we were getting, we were making headway and we were never at any particular loss of something to do. We always felt like we had a plan where we could move forwards. Um, sometimes we would be... Uh, we'd encounter trouble due to the, the gaps in our our skill base as a group. I think we were trying to... Um, we were trying to get into a building or something. And we <laughs> yeah. that none of us were actually any good at... Um, breaking or entering, so we had to just uh, kick the door right down. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think in the vampire game, uh, it shows that you can you can make plots interesting by not really having difficult clues. But, cause I, I think there's different types of, of uh, challenges in you know working your way through an intrigue and working out what's going on. Part of that is clues where you've you've got a piece of information and you can't really progress until you work out what that piece of information means, or you've or you've got uh, an issue of like you don't know who's working with who and you kind of have to see because it's in other words you know you're you're on the outside of this black box of connections and you don't know how how the inputs are connected together inside the box and it's only by testing and trialing out 
different things that you begin to feel who's connected to who. And I think often the thing that makes intrigues fairly uh, fun to play through is just by introducing the element of doubt. Um, the amount of plot and the amount of story you can get out simply because you have players, a group of players who, who, who doubt the bit of information they've been given and they doubt who's connected to who. And then you have those in-character arguments about what piece of action they should do is interesting. Obviously, you don't want it to the point, though, where their doubt becomes inaction and becomes the game stalling and coming to a stop. Um, yeah. Uh, Steve, what do you think about clues and so forth like that? Well, I think one of the things you've always got to bear in mind when you're designing an intrigue is the kind of game that your players are expecting. How yeah. long how long you're intending to play this game and also, like you said, keeping the level of interest at the right kind of peak to make sure that your group doesn't get lost and start to meander and then become, you know, more and more befuddled as to what's going on. Um, one of the things I like to do is just to, to get them on their feet in most of the campaign settings, just like you said most of the World of Darkness games are based around social interactions, it's just to have a few, for want of a better word, mini-quests yeah. that they can do for various people to either ingratiate themselves with them or to piss them off. Uh, that then at least gets them interested in a few of the major NPCs. So the NPCs that you're going to plan on having in your main intrigue have them also involved in a few of the uh, uh, beginning quests. So the group has got a vested interest, or at least knows who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, moving forward from there, I think if you're playing a long campaign, something similar to what my, me and my group are doing at the minute, you don't want to be handing out a clue a week. No, no, yeah. Because otherwise everything seems boom, 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 boom. It's all just too much information, just, just slowly more in a kind of, dare I say, a Babylon 5 kind of way, where every episode, a little, or every couple of sessions, you're given a little hint, a couple of sessions more, a reveal. Yeah. A hint, a reveal. You've got, that's, that's really important, what you just said, is you've got to have some reveals, almost like uh, you need some milestones so that there's a feeling of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, one of the things I like to do as well is, you know when your group's just talking amongst themselves? as to what's actually going on. If somebody hits the nail on the head, I'm not adverse just to saying, OK, then, well, you've hit the nail on the head, there's an XP point, or mm. something like that. Just to show the group that that person's on the right track, listen to him, and let them take that forward, rather than them all kind of blunder around a little bit. Yeah. It's, a bit it's a bit carrot and stickish, but it can get your group at least out of something that, where they're all like, uh, what's going on? I don't know. What is going on? And you're like, oh, really, guys? Come on. So, yeah. I often find um, the interesting thing is sometimes, uh, so my wife, Sam, when she's playing, sometimes loses track of what's actually going on with the plot because you, know, you get a whole other discussion between players. And she has an interesting attitude towards things in that if, her char- if she, as her character, really has no idea or has lost track of what's going on, she will just drop into 
what in character would my character, you, in character, what would I then do? If I really don't know what's going on, what, what would I do anyway? And through just doing something that makes sense, that's in character, not completely crazy, like, I'm going to go blow up a building, but, you know, just goes off and does something that starts interacting with players, with other NPCs, and is essentially generating new plot and completely new avenues through which more information can be revealed. And so I think she she gets frustrated when the entire group stagnates and she just goes, fine, my character's going to go do this for a bit and just create story. Regardless of whether it's actually moved the plot on much or not, it's still, it's still developed the setting and developed the world and, you know, through those scenes, I can still tie them tenuously to the main plot. So that's always quite helpful when you've got someone that's willing to just actually role play rather than quest hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting thing you can do is for, for players that are getting a bit uh, bored is the wrong word. I don't like bored, but a bit reluctant as to what's going on. Yeah, is you can make a sub quest for them maybe the last two or three sessions that's just about them again drawing reference to like TV series every yeah, now and yeah, then yeah. you have one character just disappears goes off by themselves for a little bit but comes back a slightly changed you could run that you could even run that if you'd like especially if you have time out of your normal game time so when they come back to the normal game they're a bit more invigorated or a bit more or can come back with another reveal for the group well that's why um, I mean James you know this don't you that the way I've run stuff is that the main plot maybe makes up about I don't know, maybe 50% 50 to 60% of the actual gameplay and that the rest of the, the, the planned out sessions and so forth actually consists of subplots that are related to the characters themselves or something a little bit more random if I want to chuck in you know, something completely weird Spice up your campaign, so to speak, yeah. Yeah, it's always good to do that. I mean, um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, I think maybe the, the second or third story into my Vampire Chronicle was the was a ghost story that I ran. Uh, I don't know, James, you may have played that one. I can't remember. No. Anyway, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's good to do that. Um... Is there anything more we can add um, about things? Um, I'm. I mean, this is this is always a difficult subject with with um, with intrigues because I think intrigues and conspiracies and so forth. There are different types of puzzles and challenges. Obviously, there are physical challenges which come down to the dice and is all about you know combat and you know planning uh, planning appropriate. Uh, appropriate opponents for combat is always a fun one but uh, I don't think it's too difficult in World of Darkness compared to say other game systems like Exalted for example um, then you've got the social com- uh, the social I say social combat but you know the social challenges which I prefer to role play more than dice roll unless a dice roll is really needed uh, yeah, fully agree fully agree and then I mean often I think if a dice roll is needed, it's either because there is no way to fully roleplay out and the dice roll is the only best way to simulate it, or 
it is a contested type of action, and you think that the dice roll's the, the most fair way to represent it, but you still use the roleplay to add the modifiers and the flavour onto it, so that good roleplay on the player's part results in you know them having more chance of success. Um, is obviously the ne- the other type of challenge in a, in an intrigue is of course the mental the mental uh, I, I like to use the crystal racing uh, mental challenge <laughs> where Richard Bryan runs through your chronicle and he's like come with me I have a puzzle for you and I'm going to take you to Mummy and she's going to ask you three questions um, and those mental problems uh, and so I I really like writing and figuring out puzzles of that sort. And either they're, they're puzzles that occur over a, a long term, which is like gathering bits of information and working out how they connect, because it's kind of like a, a very long riddle. Or they're very short and sweet kind of things. And I'm wondering, how, how do you guys feel about whether those are the type of things that players need to solve, or that should, should really stay out and you keep it to the dice rolls? Hmm. That's an interesting uh, question because I think involving your players uh, in any way other than rolling the dice sometimes is always a bit more fun because it breaks with the monotony of just picking up dice and resolving, you know, there's my dice pool, I roll that, I do it, or I don't do it, or I botch. Great. Um, So, I mean, that can... That can tie in well. I mean, if you're willing to bring in, especially for some kind of like let's say mental puzzles or something like that, uh, props that you can bring in, actual oh, yeah. puzzles, give them to the players. And you know, some people have got the mind for that that they can just take these things apart and you know put them back together easily. And but that's not really represented well on their character sheets. Or other people are are represented like that well on their character sheet, but in real life, have no clue how to do most things. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's where dice rolls for me are simply just a case of if they get stuck, you know, dice rolls result in how many hints I, more hints I throw out. Mm. Uh, James, how do you feel about those things? Because, I, I mean, you, obviously, James, you've played, like, quite a fair bit of D&D, right? Yeah. And, and how many of the, like, say, D&D stuff, or have you, if you've run, if you've played any of the pre-made modules or so forth? Because, like, I think there's a feeling with these things that you can get the kind of the classic kind of D and D style riddles in in and that's and that's can be a bit you know a bit twee. Yeah, we've had a lot. I mean, one of the things in D and D is you often feel like the the campaigns have been designed to kill you. It's not to produce a fun adventure. It's to murder the party as efficiently as possible. Um, And, you know, um, I guess that's because I have been on the receiving end of a lot of traps. Um, That just seems to be how my characters roll. I do play them a little bit... uh, a little bit reckless. But, because of that, you get things... You do get challenges where... Or you get puzzles that that are almost... Um, unanswered. Like you, you wouldn't ever sit down and go, "Oh, sure, right, that's exactly what I do." You end up resorting to the point-and-click method, where you go, "Like, what have we got in our inventory? <laughs> I will use everything I have on this statue. I will use the rubber chicken." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you you end up with creative solutions which don't work. Like I had um I had a cleric 
and we were trying to get around this immovable wall of force that was blocking us from the next part of the dungeon. And I happened to have uh, Stone to Mud as a spell. And I was like, oh, awesome. Well, what we do is we just go, the wall turns into mud, and we walk around the wall of force. Fuck it. You know, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, to me, was a fantastic solution. And then it was like, it's magic stone. Oh, fuck off. Who's that? Who? Sorry. Who um, the fuck says that? That's shit. That's an amazing solution to it. That's... But, uh, you know, it, it's things like that where you go like, okay, I've got a spell, which is basically for an edge case scenario where we need to try and figure some way out or some way around something. Why, why do I even bother? Why do we even have this in the spell book? Uh, yeah. Why is this even an option if all that's going to happen with it is, you know, magic says no? Um, and I do find puzzles, like, really, really obscure puzzles do often leave players sitting there going, like, what am I even doing? Why, why am I doing this? Um, and I've had stuff like that when I made... I made a, um, a small camp, a small game myself to introduce some people to something, and they didn't realise why they should be doing anything. They just wanted to get through this room and get on to doing something else. And it's like, okay, right, you know, it's um, it's handy to have maybe a puzzle that resolves itself if people get stuck too long. Mm. Um, I had uh, I had some a tomb. And the players had maybe a certain amount of... Like, they had, like, 15... What was it? Maybe they had, like, five, ten minutes just to to come up with a solution to stop the zombies all being raised. And if they didn't... They didn't manage to come up with something, so some zombies right, got risen. But if they had, like, burnt the tome or something, then you just go, like, I've done. But yeah. Because, yeah, because it's something that resolves itself... It's not a it's not a blocker. Hmm. I'm trying to think of the type of puzzles that I've I've um, used. So uh, uh, let's think. Um, so I do like uh, so in Changeling. I've used word puzzles, and actually, um, uh, it was an idea that I grabbed from Matt McFarlane's uh, own Changeling game. Uh, which I, uh, which is uh, misinterpretation. So the idea that you can gain a puzzle from a ghost, but ghosts have, uh, how you can say, inaccurate memories um, of what they saw in the mortal, say, the moment of death. And so the puzzle, the the, the clue, it wasn't a puzzle, but the clue was, uh, sin, uh, sin's souls uh, lie, and. That sounds like well, that that makes no sense in English, and the the clue, uh, well, the clue or, or the uh, the the thing that the players had to realise was that actually it was a misinterpretation, and that actually it's uh, it's a kind of a play on words, and actually it means it's actually uh, Latin, which means uh, sin solio. Uh, yeah, it's like Sin Solio or something, I can't remember, it's on my blog anyway, but, um, which essentially means, without light, I am silent. Um, and you can do little things like that, I think, I think it's very fitting for World of Darkness, especially when you've got ghosts and supernatural things to do, 
kind of word plays and misinterpretations or, or numbers and so forth, like um, like how things are seen, say, backwards or upside down, and that can and you can change meanings of things by doing that. And so it's it's a very different problem to uh, to work out. Uh, other visual puzzles I've done for Exalted, um, the puzzle was that the players had to uh, had a lock, and upon the lock it had in uh, in a in a very strange kind of like uh, in all these kind of straight lines. You know the um, the alchemical symbols for the planets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you've watched Sailor Moon enough, you should know them. Um, anyway, uh, but I drew them out as for their puzzle as uh, it, as if they'd been drawn using just straight lines. So circles had become squares, and they'd all been and there were also gaps in them because it was a alchem- it was a um, an orthothonian uh, laboratory, and just by doing that, it it turns something that sh- would essentially be very easy to interpret because the amount of people in my gaming group that are fully aware of what the alchemical symbols of planets look like were looking at this, going, "What the hell is this?" And then you know it dawns on them that actually it's these symbols, and then the rest of the puzzle was. That was the puzzle, was just the interpretation. Um, uh, what other things are there? Uh, other puzzles I've used in uh, my changing game. Uh, uh, often I think word puzzles are the best. I don't think number puzzles are too helpful unless you know you've got someone that enjoys doing that thing. The last thing you want to do is slap down in front of your group a uh, Sudoku uh, puzzle, uh, essentially. Um, I can't think of any other examples. Uh, vampire, do I use any? I don't think so. Uh, any other examples of things you've used in your games? Well, I went to Great Lens once and made a document that had a document hidden inside it. No, oh, classic. Um, but that's a little difficult and a bit time-consuming, especially as I u- decided to use a, like a number sequence. Yeah, that led you to the word, the line, etc., etc., and that that became both difficult to get uh, the the original message that they would got, so it made sense, and also, you know, the, the message that you want to come out of it makes sense. But if, if done correctly, it can be quite interesting, especially if people like that sense of oh, I start to figure this out, and suddenly it all starts to make sense in front of them. Uh, if people like that in your group, that's a great thing to do. Or um, the other thing uh, that I've seen done uh, recently is in Call of Cthulhu board game. Is it the Mansions of Madness? Occasionally when you come to locked doors, you're presented with a bunch of cardboard chits that are like the lock on the door or the electronic kind of pathway to unlock the door. You have to turn cards, and depending on your skill level, how many, how many times you can turn or add in new cards is Mm. And that's that's something that's also quite interesting. You can pick up from another game and just insert in a World of Darkness kind of setting. Yeah, that's actually a really good suggestion there. Um, it's definitely grabbing puzzles from uh, from other games. Um, I think you can definitely do that. I think the more abstract kind of like board games could be quite good for that. So James, you know the Git and Zerts games that I've got. Yeah. I think those would be really nice. Like you could almost set up a a puzzle, and it's something that the players have to work out how to do in, say, 
what the solution is in, say, three moves. Um, and you can then use that to simulate, say, uh, them having to, uh, you know, you can use that as a simulation of, like, say, hacking a computer, because hacking a computer is a difficult thing to simulate, but I think using these abstract board games is, is, a, is a nice way of simulating that. Um, ooh, what other things would I suggest? That kind of reminds me of... Um, it's, it's something that you very often see in video games, for example, lockpicking and computer hacking, and Fallout had something where you, um, you were basically playing a, like a word-matching slash mastermind game where you picked a word and it told you how many letters matched up. Yeah. Um, and then you had to figure out which one it was out of the selection of other words. You could almost play Hangman for hacking a computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them, um, like you could limit the player versus dependent on how many um, how good their actual hacking skill was. You could limit them on how many times they get to guess the uh, password. If there's definitely a game, uh, games that I would suggest to go look for um, the type of puzzles I like to run, uh, Assassin's Creed 2. The Subject 16 puzzles in there. Uh, there are some puzzles which are like rotating pictures. So they're kind of like uh, fitting all the bits together. That's, that's something that's very difficult to use. But there are examples of puzzles in there that are to do with decoding and also puzzles that are based upon, quite simply, like out of these images... Um, you have to pick the correct ones, and you have to pick the ones that have that share the common theme. I kind of like that kind of thing because because the, then you can you can really choose pictures that fit the theme of of the story you're telling. So um, I think an example of that was in my change game where I used the uh, uh, the first to die and the first of thirteen. So the first to die was uh, was um, to do with Cain and Abel, and then the first of 13 was the first of the 13 apostles. So um, you can you can do that type of thing, and that relates to pictures and uh, related to pictures by Titian, who was a famous uh, Venetian painter. So yeah, you can do kind of a load of different things. I think it just requires a little bit of creativity on that. Uh, games also to look at, I think, the Batman Arkham City and Arkham Asylum have some really good examples of puzzles in there. I really wouldn't go with the type of puzzles from Monkey Island, though, because you're just going to piss off your players. <laughs> Voodoo spit. Yeah. yeah, just not. No, no, no. That'd be terrible. Um, other things you can use to simulate it. Um, I think we've kind of exhausted. I mean. It's just doing it in the right way that's not going to piss off your players and makes it makes it fun and fits with what you're running. Yeah, a, um, little, a little goes a long way. Because uh, if every time they come to something, you present them with another puzzle, it's like, oh, what else is new? That that that's a big that's a big thing. You can't keep you know puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. Yeah, I, I think definitely trying to make in-game uh, in-game artifacts is also kind of is quite useful. Um, it just gives something more tangible to hold on to, and especially if it's themed around like uh, what your um, your players are involved in. So, you know, if you could hide things within, say, uh, a, a text that mm-hmm. is uh, from, say, the page of the Testament of Longinus, for example, or 
if you want to do, um, for example, to represent, say, a mage's uh, magical tome that's been encrypted by some means, of course, uh, I would use the idea of um, uh, the film Contact. You guys oh, yeah. remember that? They have they get all the bits of information, but it doesn't make sense until they realise that the that each page they have is actually the side of of a box. And once you match up those bo- those sides of boxes, you realise that depending on which way you look through the the box of these images, that the uh, each page overlays onto the one on the other side and creates the full page. And then you've got multiple boxes with multiple page overlays, and that. And the idea of overlays is really good because all you then need is like a printer and some acetate sheets, or hell, all you need is is some thin A4 paper and something very bright, and you can have. All, and then the, the the challenge is for your players to say take these. Well, not A4. I, I would say piece of paper that are at least square in shape because then that makes it a real challenge. And they have to like layer them up in the correct way, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, the, all these things take a bit of effort. It depends how much effort you want to put in. Um, cool. Okay. I think that's kind of the intrigue and, and, and things that's considered there. Uh, the other main challenge, of course, is designing NPCs. Um, last time we talked about how many NPCs would you want in your game, but we didn't really talk about designing them, as in key features how much information you give for them, and dangers that you can run into when creating them. Um, I've also got, is normal abnormal, or is abnormal normal? And about how cliches can work for you, and when they don't. Um, So, Steve, what do you think about design NPCs? What's, say, the biggest... uh, problem that that you see people run into or you hear about when people create characters? I think uh, for me I think the biggest problem is overpowering NPCs uh, in your show notes that you pass around you've got uh, Count Von Badass yeah uh, we've all met characters like that I'm sure that, uh, no matter what you do no matter how powerful you are they're always wielding something far more powerful and the GM just sits the other side of his screen cackling with delight as he smashes PC after PC yeah, Count Von Badass is a term I've borrowed from uh, the Fear the Boot podcast because it just makes it just makes sense. Uh, they originally referred to him as Baron Von Badass, but I think Count Von Badass makes more sense in our in our context. Yeah, um, it's it's problematic when you have a character which is the the game's master's favourite because he's not going to die and he's always going to have an ace up his sleeve. Um, just don't do it I think that's the one thing to say <laughs> just well, don't let them happen I, I think uh, sometimes you should look at your NPCs and say okay then perhaps they are seemingly invincible from one avenue say the traditional way of looking at things can we kick his ass uh, you know we could all look at say oh, for Old World of Darkness you know um, uh, rank 5 werewolves you know, if you want to go toe-to-toe with one of those guys, good luck with that. Hmm. But that does not mean that they are totally, uh, you know, impervious to harm by coming at them from different ways, i.e. from, like, uh, getting his allies to do things to him, or, you know, your, your, your 
your NPC should always be somewhat a little flawed or have some kind of flaw that the group can then identify and use to their uh, their ability. To find that uh, groups like to use people um, to nefarious ends and be used by other people, so the, the, the failings in the players could be used by other, you know, NPCs that are uh, wise enough to see them, especially if the group doesn't make uh, too much in hiding their flaws. Mm. Mm. Um, another thing to think about is what's the relationship with the NPC and the PCs because if you have an NPC that's seemingly doing his own thing all the time doesn't really involve himself in too much to do with the PCs they'll just be like something's happened to this guy they'll be like oh yeah so it doesn't really affect us and that might be the linchpin of something monumental happening for you that the group's just like really? okay I don't understand or you know, you've got to make your NPCs those that you're going to be using in your intrigue somehow tied into the PCs so they give a damn about them. Um, how about you guys? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have always kind of found NPCs as a little bit... Um, in, in D&D, I've had a lot of NPCs killed by players just flipping out every now and again someone decides that it's been more than 15 minutes since they've had a chance to fight someone so they uh, they like they'll shoot a wizard halfway through his speech on uh, on why he's trapped them in a dungeon or something um, so I I guess I've not encountered the point where I've made them too uh, too survivable sometimes they're not quite <laughs> survivable enough um, but I think you've got to be with your characters. You shouldn't really, or your NPCs. You shouldn't particularly be too precious about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't. You don't want to necessarily put someone in. If you want to make someone more survivable, um, maybe put them in a situation where they're less likely to get killed. So you have a vampire who um, he's done. He's got some evil plan, and the players are face to face with him but they're face-to-face with him in Elysium. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if they really want to fl- if they really want to attack him just on the benefit of the evidence that supposedly they have right in front of their prince, then go ahead and do it. But there's a sheriff and there's all the other vampires who are going to just see these players lash out at someone else. Um, so they're more held in place. Uh, the character is protected by the social structure around him as opposed to, like... It's a full moon. I'm invulnerable. Trollolol. You can't hurt me. Um, no, that, yeah. that's all. That's that. That all makes sense because um, because as Steve said, it's like you know working out the different ways that an NPC could be uh, essentially invincible to your players, but also there are different ways that he's also completely at their mercy and it all depends upon the creativity of your of your players um, and that's more so true in any of any game is, is Mage for example so because you've got so many different solutions to how you could get past a particular challenge you don't have to just do a toe-to-toe fight or or uh, break down their magical shield um, you can always have ways of sidestepping around issues or simply just having them taken out by the fact that you have the sheer force of numbers that you've built up 
just by making friends and influencing people. Um, so what key features are there with designing NPCs? I think when I say this, is, um, as we said last time, I think we spoke about how there are three different levels of NPC details that you can do. Yes. So there is the full character sheet, then there is the cut-down character sheet, and then there is the, par- uh, the, the two-line description of the person, and they have one or two dice balls described. And I think I'm talking about that really here, the, the full char- character sheet people, because they are going to be your movers and shakers behind your, um, your intrigues. So, and I think this, this, when I say key features, and then it's how much detail, we've already kind of addressed that, is you want quite a bit of detail there, and is abnormal normal, or is normal abnormal? So, I think there can be a danger in, in a lot of roleplay games, and especially in Vampire in particular, but also other ones as well, making NPCs a bit too outlandish or cool or a bit too funky a bit too weird um, I think one of the key things for me I always try and keep in mind is that in the world of darkness many if not all of your NPCs will have at some point been human so humans are mundane creatures suddenly becoming a vampire does not make them into sparkle fairies you know, it's um, or or they're not they're, they're not not all Deva or not all Toreador are supermodels or something like that. No, I know what you're trying to get across that you know you can have these things in, in smaller amounts and not play off the cliches of these things too too much because you know a, a few cliches here and there are okay. Too many cliches are just going to be. Like, uh, for instance, in the old world of darkness, um, the Nosferatu—they are constantly living in the sewers. Well, you know, you could mix that up somewhat and say, okay, well, they're actually—they're not. They're actually running the boardroom of the largest corporation in the city. Yeah. Just to mix things up, because then you make abnormal normal. Yeah, I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's a difficult one. Is um, you can—it's easy to fall into these. Um, into these ruts. Um, I would say cliches are bad. Quirks are good, though. Quirks are something you can roleplay, whether it's like to do with how they, the character may have a certain anachronistic way in which they dress, or or a certain brand that they prefer to, to wear or, or use, or, um, or particular drinks, or anything like that, which you think picks them out as being slightly different to other people or at their level or within your setting. Um, so you're talking like idiosyncrasies rather than yeah. straight off weirdness. Yeah, I think those are more fun and th- those are more interesting for players to pick up on. And that also keys in with the fact that you're reflecting the fact that then the players themselves don't have to have characters that are so outlandish and again, you know, uh, oh, well, I'm a virtual adept, therefore I, I constantly wear mirror shades and walk around in trench coats or um, or the equivalent you know it's I think NPCs can be interesting without being completely freaking weird or, or over the top um, but the other information you really should include is for the ones that are involved in your intrigues is as much information which 
relates to why they are doing what they are doing. Why have they got to this point in their life that they are wanting to kill half the vampires in the city, for example, or, or whatever whatever the, whatever goals they've got. It is unsaying why they're doing it. You don't... No one is evil for evil's sake. There is no straight-up, you know, cape-wearing, ha I will kill everyone. It's not... You know, it's not a Saturday morning cartoon series. Um, I think it's important to have, to know motivations. And also to know what they care about, because many of, I think, of these antagonists in, a, in, a, in World of Darkness games, once you begin to understand more and more about these NPCs, you actually may have players become quite sympathetic to their cause. Mm. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean... Anything where you can get your players involved with your NPCs so they give a damn is going to be great. Their motivations for doing things explains where that guy is coming from. It, it allows you, you know, touchstones to relate between the PCs and your NPCs and say, this guy wants to do this. If you, were, if you guys are thinking about doing the similar kind of thing in this chronicle, work with him. This guy's trying to do with this, which is another tie into that idea that we talked about last time with the Gandalf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can produce a, a bunch of smaller intrigues that show the motivations of the key players and say, okay, then well, there's your plethora of Gandalfs or mentors to look at and say which one interests you and to hit your wagon to, so to speak. Um, or, interestingly enough, which ones you can piss off and then become the antagonist for the group. That you know, the group knows why their uh, you know their their arch nemesis thwarts them. It's because of this. We did this to him right at the very beginning, and now he hates us. And every time we go to do something, he tries to step in and muck it up for us, or his minions step in. Yeah. That's, that's another thing that you could sometimes look at as well. Is your I think, NPC... Sorry, after you. I was going to say, I think the interesting thing is also is that you can have NPCs that the players are antagonistic towards, and, and that NPC is then antagonistic to them. Mm-hmm. And it could be... It could come down to something as simple as they just don't get on. Yeah. And, you know, vampires are petty enough creatures, so are mages, and anyone else. And I think, again, that drives home that how, how uh, you know, World Darts games are social games, is that the reason that, that you can have people fighting against each other could simply come down to the fact that someone just, you know, put, had a foot-in-mouth kind of scenario where they were like, well, I don't really like that film. And it's like, don't like that film. You're an asshole. Mm. It's like, and then that's where it begins. And the next week, you know, they're 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 one up in each other. And then the week after that, something someone you know escalates the uh, the antagonism to the next level. That violence starts to occur. And you know, not everything has to be due to grand. You know, antagonists, people fighting against each other doesn't have to be due to some deep seated kind of nefarious plot. It could just evolve naturally out of a just simple dislike of each other. Exactly. We, we had this in um, in the changing game that you ran. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I the, uh, I, my, my dad was a tailor and um, I'd made dresses for the people turning up at the ball and someone insulted them. Yes. Um, so I... I was, uh, I was really rude to her. Really, really rude. Um... And then she bit my ear off. 
<laughs> okay. Um, and it would have. She didn't bite your ear off. She. Um, what did she do? So I think. No, she went for it. We. Um, there, no, was she, a, there was a ball, and she bit my. She no, she bit your ear in a very playful way, didn't she? No, she pulled the thing off. <laughs> well, she tried to. If I. Um, no, I, I don't remember her because I, you know, I was role playing that character. Obviously, no, she she was basically um, she she bit your ear, not in a way that she was going to rip it off, but it was to just show that she was in, in control of the situation. Because I believe that you were having to dance, your character was having to dance with her. Yes. Yeah. So she just did that just to show you who was in charge. Right. Well, I I would have um yes if I if I'd been put in that uh, chronicle, I would have probably have gone out of my way from that point on to. Ridicule to, the bitch, yeah. To, to ridicule her and raise hell for her in any possible way that I could conceivably manage. Um, and that's, as you said, this is exactly what you guys are talking about, that uh, sometimes you can find a nemesis through through very simple manners. Like, she, she'd, yeah, like, she did, uh, insulted the thing that my character was basically based, like, he'd built his life around. Yeah. And sometimes that, yeah, that can be, like, if you're, really in your character mindset that can be enough yeah <laughs> yeah uh, I mean it's always funny when you see that because you can immediately see it's, it's more fun when you see players not get on with NPCs simply because they some, for some whatever reason just don't like them either because the player doesn't like the character or there's a the, the role the role play leads to that kind of that, that antagonism and dislike of of uh, that NPC and it can become quite a curious thing when suddenly that that NPC that they just hated for like half the chronicle is the one that actually can help them out and then they have this they have to reevaluate their opinion of this person because they're like he's a complete dick but actually when the chips are down he's quite cool but it's like oh right um, where do you go from there and that's that I think is a lot fun to play out than just the straight up well he's the one that's been murdering everyone and you know stealing their hearts let's beat him up you know, so so straightforward and obvious but getting to know why somebody's beating someone up and stealing their hearts yes perhaps, yeah. perhaps it's something that they're not wanting to do but are being forced into do it so exactly you, you bursting into the uh, in, on the in on the scene and just having at them is you know probably the worst Solution. It is a solution, nonetheless, though. But, uh. Um, yeah, carry on. If you got something, I'm also sorry. I was just looking at the rest of our notes here. But yeah, but um, I think I think your your players' relationship with your NPCs as well can be governed by good storytelling. By just basically, if you want the guy to be an arsehole, role play like an arsehole. We can all we can all do it. Just every little thing that you you, you know you, you want to say about their characters, anything that they've done, anything that's common knowledge that they messed up, just hint at it. But as you said in your example of the Changeling game, where uh, your tailor James was slighted by somebody else, and that became a big thing. Well, that's a, perhaps perhaps that's what Chris had in mind all along that he wanted to build this essence of animo- animo- animosity between you and this uh, shadowy fae. And then lead you somewhere else with it, or show you that you know she's not so bad, but you know she's perhaps uh, somebody else's opinions governing what she's saying. Mm. It's even more fun when when you've got a, a group of players and half the char- say one 
one group of the characters gets on with one NPC, but then the other the other part of the players, their characters don't get on with that NPC, and that's when it becomes really, really curious in how how they interact. Um, well, in my Pittsburgh thing at the minute, uh, the two sisters, Faith and Hope, that vie for power of the city. Yeah. Uh, the group as a whole is working for Faith. Um, but there's one or two players that right from the beginning were saying, do you know what, we really like Hope. We'd much prefer to take the story in this direction. <laughs> but because they're in the kind of uh, the minority for the group, the rest of the group voted to go so with Faith. But they've always had, like, every time there's an interaction with Faith, it pisses off the rest of the group. They're always there like that, saying, oh, you know, but you know, Hope's always, you know, I just like her style, and we like the way she does things. And that's quite interesting, because for the rest of the group, they're like, oh, you again. What are you going to do to us now? So, hmm. And that's, uh, you know, getting your, 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 perhaps your PCs motivated into the, uh, the ideas behind your NPC as well. Or then buying into the motivations of the NPC. You know, they don't, you know. Empathy to their situation is always a great thing, especially if they're on the opposite side. Cool. Um, I think we've covered pretty much about the intrigue. I can't think of anything else unless anyone wants to raise any points about that, about designing NPCs. Um, um, don't be scared of having just a few NPCs as well, especially when you're kicking off for the very first time or you're doing something for new people. The number of people that you introduce to them should be either small or drip-fed, so they're not just overwhelmed with... You walk into the uh, the court of the city and there's 50 vampires turn and face you, and there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, quite, that's quite important. It's like, yeah, drip-feed, because running Elysium or any kind of meeting for players is very difficult, because suddenly players want to talk to fucking everyone and you're mm-hmm. just like, oh, I, I can't be doing with this, so I'll give you a general... If In those scenarios, yeah, give a general feel of what conversations are going on mm-hmm. and which of your key NPCs are involved in these conversations. So therefore, you've, you've kind of distilled it down to little groups within the meeting. Then if you have introduced... If you do, on the fly, introduce new NPCs, you can at least note them down and flesh them out later. Um, yeah, I've been in that scenario far too many times. <laughs> um, well, here's a technique that I, I've been kicking around with, and it's worked quite well in Pittsburgh at the minute, it's to print off pictures for each one of the characters. Then every time that there's a large social gathering, I lay these pictures out in little groups, i.e. the people that are talking in those little social circles. So when the group then enters the room, they can see the social situation laid out before them and oh. see where everybody else is. And they can say, okay, then, well, there's a new face I've not ever seen before. I'm going to go to speak to this person. That is really cool. I like that one. I haven't thought of that ever before. Mm. The other thing you can do as well is when you have big interactions like that is you can pick up the picture and talk. That is that NPC talking. You then pick up another picture and start talking again. That is that NPC talking. So instead of says Ivan, says Christoph, says, you know, all the, all the way through your narrative it can be much more fluid and you can just pick up pictures and, and voice different you know the flow of your narrative is much better that way as well but that's just an idea that I've been kicking around with so. no that's uh, that's actually a really really decent one that's really quite cool um, okay I think we're going to shift 
a little bit of topic to, um, so we can wrap up with a few things, to some fan mail. Yes, we've actually had fan mail based upon this series of Darklings, which is great, and obviously more questions should be uh, sent in to us at our normal email address, which we'll give at the end. So, um, and of course, being contacted on Facebook or on our Google Plus or our blog. Um, so what we've got here is, first up, um, we have Scott on our Facebook page asked about crossover games and coping with them. Hmm. Uh, I will say, first of all, if you're going to run a crossover, if you want to do crossover games, it's a hell of a lot easier doing it in New World of Darkness, as everyone mostly knows. Uh, classic World of Darkness, it was a pain in the ass. I remember the pages upon pages of dealing with it in um, Midnight Circus, uh, which was a supplement where you could have crossover. Crossover was kind of like, uh, was pretty much the aim of that book. And it's it's difficult because you had to balance off quite a lot of powers. And in Classic World of Darkness, that's really quite difficult. Um, so I think, rather than talking about the difficulty of crossover due to rules, because obviously we know that is difficult for Classic World of Darkness and fairly easy for New World of Darkness because of how New World of Darkness is constructed, uh, let's talk about crossover in the sense of what type of things from each of the splats works together well, and what type of stories can you tell then using crossover? Um, okay, straight off the bat... Uh, idea straight out, uh, off the top of my head is Risen for Wraith the Oblivion hanging around with vampires as you are essentially both dead creatures dead in different ways and animated in different ways uh, in the, the book The Risen it talks about uh, a little chapter in there about actual the crossover it's uh, same curriculum different school yeah it's hinted at so um, I think that, that idea can definitely be applied to a lot of stuff, also in New World of Darkness as well. Um, my first up thing is, in New World of Darkness, at least, it's quite easy to identify groups within New World of Darkness, which would naturally work well together anyway, because of the type of things they, they research or involved in. So, for example, there are... Uh, there is a group of werewolves. Um, I'm just trying to think which group it is, actually. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of which group of the Forsaken it is. Is it Walkers in Darkness? Is that even a group? Anyway, the fact is, uh, the Ordo Dracul, for example, can happily get on with and have a, uh, have a lot in common, say, with werewolves because they have interactions with nodes, which the Autodrapal call Worms Nests, or Dragon Lines, um, and those often are the same locations that, say, for wells are where there's a locus, or where there's uh, a... for mages is also a, a font of uh, magical power, or for changeling is a, a verge, or a location that easily gets you into the hedge, or uh, for Geist is a location of an Avernian gate, and so immediately you can have you can see that that by looking at some of these sub factions within each of the splats, they have a lot of crossover due to the same sort of things they deal with. So there is a bloodline of vampires, for example, that has the ability to interact with ghosts. Uh, that's in um, 
that's in uh, the Book of the Dead for New World Darkness. Uh, in the Book of Spirits for New World Darkness, it also details a bloodline of vampires that can manipulate and interact with spirits. So I think crossover is quite easy to deal with, and there are groups that naturally it works well for. Um, there is a... the Autumn Court in Changing the Lost is also all about dealing with ghosts and supernatural entities in general, and so they are good for crossover, and there's in fact a, a uh, an entitlement that is even more focused on doing that. So, as you said, Steve, it's about, you know, same subject, just different material uh, and approach to the challenges there. And then really the, 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 uh, the task is, is understanding why does a, a vampire, a changeling and a mage work together? And I think it's often picking out something which is uh, an antagonist or a challenge, which is common to them all. Um, yeah, if they're having to deal with um, ancient ghosts that have been driven completely mad, that have somehow escaped the the, the dark, the deepest part of the underworld, mm-hmm. that is a challenge to both vampires, sin eaters, and mages of say the uh, of the Moros path, because this ghost is dealing is is stirring up trouble for all groups within the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of something. Or even, if you want to go for a classic, because we mentioned it in the latest uh, Dark Days main show, demons. Demons have a lot to gain from any of the supernatural groups in uh, in any of New World Darkness or Classic World Darkness. And so make for an ideal kind of antagonist which, which uh, different supernatural creatures can uh, rally around that cause to fight against or to combat or... or if they've got their own own plan to make use of the demon when the others think they're just fighting it. Yeah, I mean, in uh, classic World of Darkness, in the Kindred of the East, you have the uh, Yama Kings, mm. who uh, are the, you know, the, the, the overlords of the 10,000 Hells that are tr- trying to bring out the sixth age of, uh, of uh, being. And that crosses over to, you know, werewolves, vampires... And is a, a common touchstone that they can work together as a common cause. So, uh, but still have that essence of conflict between the PCs. That's quite that's quite an interesting thing to do. Um, also, because of the very nature of of, um, of the crossover and the fact that in New World Darkness they're less antagonistic, is a group like that can also be very ambassadorial because they can then. They, they draw together what common knowledge they have, but then can also act to kind of smooth over negotiations between different supernatural societies. And their task is then to, you know, police the uh, the borders between each group and deal with the things that falls into into the jurisdiction of both groups. I think that would be kind of fun to play out as well. Obviously, that relies on your players understanding that is the task of their their characters, as, along with whatever subplots you've got. I think you can only really play out a crossover like that if if the players from the outset know that they're unified for a specific reason and play to it. Mm-hmm. I've never really done a crossover group. I wouldn't mind doing one. I have some ideas for it. Uh, 
The things I have done as crossover, though, is often just drop antagonists from different game lines into the one that I'm running. So, you know, I've had a Promethean turn up in my Changeling games. I've had Spirits turn up in my Vampire games. Uh, and that always is good fun just so you can showcase some different abilities and powers and kind of scare the players a bit uh, and show that they don't know everything. Yeah, and as someone on the receiving end of that, um, <laughs> it was quite nice because you get to see you can't really metagame it because it's, it's like often people try and look at the abilities that something has in relation to their own and when you're fighting a vampire you kind of go like, okay, it can like it can probably only manage this kind of stuff and this kind of stuff. When you introduce monsters from a different setting, you don't really have the same framework to put them in in your head, um, which is great for something that's meant to be different and scary. You can't rationalise it within the same system that you're using. Mm. I think the, the, the big problem you'll always have uh, with uh, crossover games though especially if it's something that your players have asked for it's often it's born out of the idea of let's make some badass characters yeah uh, uh, you know old world of darkness had a few kind of uh, uh, blips I mean Samuel Hate being the big one yes the other big one abominations oh uh, yeah. yeah yeah these things are the half vampire half werewolf kind of crossover nightmare the best of both worlds worst of both no no it's just it's just for players who want to go I kick ass yeah, really okay um, and I think if your players are looking at it from that point of view or if you're looking at it from that point of view yourself I think you're going to be sadly sadly disappointed because I don't think the world of darkness combat system in either new or old and I think new slightly better than old um, it's a bit clunky so role-playing where you're just going to hammer out things with your mighty powers it's going to be pretty tedious. I think there's better games out there where you can cross things over if you're really desperate to do that kind of, you know, power gaming. So. Cool. I, think, I don't think we've really got more to add on that. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it is a difficult challenge. I think it's, it's unified. The, the main aim is finding a unifying story for why they should be together rather than obviously going in the, the route of let's have all the let's have a super team um, yeah okay cool uh, next up uh, uh, David asks about the use of technology that can be used to manage the game right okay um, I think I'll just give my experience of this I'll stop um, so Obviously, there are a few things I do as part of my game. So I have uh, Word documents that have my my own uh, game notes in. Uh, I have Word documents that have notes which I would disseminate to players. I have documents that have cheat sheets that I disseminate to players because sometimes I really don't want players to have to flip through books to find all the basic rules. I have made cheat sheets that make it easy to do that. Um... And then also I maintain a blog where I write up the actual play. Um, so I write up the actual game sessions uh, in, a, in a more story-based manner so that they're a point where players can actually go read what's happened. As much as 
you know, as long as your players actually appreciate the fact you write those things. Um, and then, really, the uh, other things I have going on are, um, you know, on the blog I'll also post wiki-type articles that players can use for reference if there's they need some more information on certain groups. Um, I have on my laptop a playlist for whichever game I'm running, so I've got about three hours' worth of music, which is just queued up in a particular way that, that is constantly rising tension, that oscillates in being calm and being energetic. And I also have a slideshow of images that I then uh, have play out on TV because I link the laptop up to it. Um, lastly, other bits of technology I use, um, you know, I make use of, um, I have a tablet for reading PDFs on, that makes life a lot easier for searching for things, um, and book-wise, and that's about it. I know there's, there are specific kind of things out there, like, um, Obsidian Portal, which is kind of a, uh, make your own wiki for your games, essentially, uh, that players can interact with. But again, that's 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 really just a wiki version of blogging, so uh, it falls into the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, I don't really make use of dice rollers on Android devices yet, but you know, depends what mood I'm in um, or what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, what do you think, guys? Technology, gaming. I'm a big fan of technology. I've got to say. Bringing it anything to the table, be it you know a laptop or even a you know a clever smartphone with a nice uh, app that you haven't seen before on it. All these things are just there to help your game. I mean, back in the day, role playing was pen and paper. Well, let's face it, pen and paper is having its day and losing against these portable media devices we've all got in our pockets. I think this is the way that gaming should go, and I think it'd be nice to see. Uh, companies knocking out a few more things that are like White Wolf created apps for want of a better word mm. uh, or I know there was some talk uh, a long time ago about a White Wolf uh, Chronicle uh, managing software wasn't there? I think they yeah. uh, they realised that Wizards of the Coast hit a brick wall with that with their their kind of version of that and uh, were, were cautious about it, I mean I don't know where I haven't heard anything recently about that that's something else I'd like to see. Yeah, that would be kind of cool to see yeah. that. But then just careful, careful, like you say, creating Word documents that are carefully ordered that you make backups of as well. There's another, there's another thing that we should chuck out there. Yeah, um, um, uh, so, I mean, I think I would start using more and more as, um, you know, as I said, there's like, you can use wikis and so forth. Google Drive, um, you know, Google Documents mm-hmm. is also a great way of storing stuff and disseminating it uh, to, to your players. Um, I was, I was going to say, actually, Google Docs, like, I, I've been enjoying it, um, using it for our show notes, and um, I'm actually writing my uh, my Hamburg Chronicles stuff on, on Google Docs. But yeah. it struck me as an interesting way that you could share stuff like... Um, Downtime between yes. what the players are doing because then people can update what's happening, what they want to do in their downtime. And if people actually have an idea early on, you could even like if someone does something, you could actually respond before your session. 
and if other players notice something's happened, it means like it it'd be nice for say you're you're giving players like a week of downtime or something and something major happens. People who are clued in can see these developments as they go through. Um and it's yeah, it, it, it's just I, I quite like it. it's a nice way that people can quite communally edit everything as well. Like if someone wants to go on an excursion with X person, that person can opt in or opt out. Um, I also uh, through work stuff, I've been doing a lot of uh, diagramming and flowcharts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a a nice free uh, diagramming tool on the pic. On the PC, and I think they're actually going to be doing Android support for it. Okay. Am I? Are we, are we allowed to plug stuff like that? Yeah, we can plug anything you want. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, it's called Yed, as in okay. Yed, um, and it's got loads of different types of diagramming, like um, networks and flowcharts and stuff. And you can use that for maybe uh, the in- designing your intrigue. Yeah. Um, but it's also got handy stuff like it. Um, you can have a massive mess on the screen, and you can automatically arrange it depending on what type of diagram you want. Mm. So sometimes it gets an absolute mess when you have all the connections between like this feature and this feature and this feature are all connected to like seven other features. Um, but it's usually just a pretty good job of cleaning stuff up and making it actually intelligible for people. Yeah, I mean. That's that's kind of useful. I mean, the other thing I think with um, something I have tried, and you can use something like PowerPoint or its equivalent. Um, I think very good for when you do need to have a map for combat mm-hmm. that you can manipulate in real time. Um, I think you could do that type of thing quite quite well because I'm I'm not one for cracking out the miniatures, but if there was a way to um, to display it on a TV or on a tablet quite happily, a, a, like a combat scenario, then that's more my thing. Um, you could use a... Um, you could actually use a layered uh, graphics program if you wanted to do... Um, yeah, exactly, like, yeah. Else like that. Like, um... Oh, Paint.net or um, GIMP. Um, yeah. And you could... If you wanted to do something like that on the PC, you could lock your line art so that you have that on different layers so it doesn't interact. And then when you move people, you just copy and paste them around on the screen. Yeah, and that'd be, exactly. That would be quite nice, especially in a game where the scenery could change a lot. You might yeah, because then you can, you can draw the alterations onto your line art. Yeah. Um, and then actually, if you can get hold of it, you, can, you could almost get hold of any pre-made maps that are available as PDF and you can load them in. Uh, something I've seen that's done quite nicely, it was done on a, a friend had on his laptop, and we looked at it. really helps when you're playing, uh, especially if you're playing something like t- uh, a technocracy game. Uh, it's really cool to have like uh, classic-looking blueprints as a, as a PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. Or actually having a PowerPoint presentation as... Gentlemen, your mission is you must kill the... You must remove the reality deviance. It is a level six threat. And your 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 entry point is here, and your extraction point is here. You have twelve hours, and you know just having it come up as a classic kind of PowerPoint introduction of what you're doing. It really adds again. It's this idea of like in-game artifacts, which 
when you can do it, it's really good. And I think it's even easier in this day and age. Now we have, you know, TVs and laptops and tablets that can display your documents that have weird text on them. And, you know, you can pull images from wherever. Um, yeah, I think that kind of covers it, really. Technology. Technology good. Technology, Technology good. is great for it. I mean, it's a completely different thing from, like, when um, when I got started out. You know, these things I would hand-draw out entire maps and dungeons on on grid paper. And yes, from, yes, I, I'm the same. I probably kept WH Swiss going for about four years. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, right. Uh, I think that covers all of that. Um, so finally, in wrap-up, I think we should basically say what type of stuff we've been, other things we've been working on, which is, because I think we're almost at the point where we can kind of show off some of what we've written, that follows, that shows that we're not just speaking a whole load of shit here, that we're actually following our own kind of advice, is our Darker Days project. Yes. So, um... Yeah, okay, um, so the Darker Days Project is a chronicle uh, example um, which will have a fair amount of information to the point that where we can write it without killing ourselves because uh, we want to run our own stuff. Um, and we have chosen to write a chronicle outline and extra information so that people can run it for the city of Moscow. Um, but the fun thing is, we're taking the information that is there and the ideas that we've got for it, and we're casting them in both New World of Darkness and Classic World of Darkness. So this is essentially the same treatment for the city of Moscow, but for Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Requiem. So you will see where there is definite similarities between the two settings and also some differences that occur due to the differences of the two games. Um... What more can we talk about that then, guys, so far? Because we haven't, we've done some stuff for it, but we haven't done loads yet. Um, I mean, right now we've kind of got a mood and theme and uh, kind of a feel for what the Chronicle is like. We've got some ideas there. Um, I'm kind of slowly going through the history of Moscow and find some flashpoints of how it fits in with, um, with anything supernatural at all that I can add in. Um, there's some interesting bits in there. Um, Steve, James, what other things have you spotted? Or have you written so far or ideas you've got for it? Well, I've been looking at it through the lenses of the old world darkness, as you guys know. And what I'm looking at at the minute is the classic uh, Bolshevik, Bolshevik revolution, where the Brujar snatched control from the venturing kind of overlords of Russia and how by the time the late 90s, early 2000s roll around, those Brujar lose power again, but to, to none other than the venturing that re, uh, reformed and uh, re, re, kind of re-rallied their ranks and in the form of the oligarchs, which are the kind of Russian you know, leaders that are billionaires. Roman Abramovich is a good example of one of the Russian oligarchs. Um, yeah. And these, how there's an exchange of power from back to the old, and this, this idea of a re-rise of grandeur, which I think is going to be tying into the Requiem, which is what you're looking at, isn't it, Chris? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of done the same sort of treat, written the same sort of treatment. So the idea of like there was a a Carthian, uh, you know, they call it a dictor, uh, um, uh, which has finally kind of uh, collapsed and was uh, essentially a atheistic uh, fascist regime. Um, because Carthians aren't all uh, communists, and in fact, mm-hmm. it was it was more of a a, a very pure kind of form of uh, of a fascist regime, and that these dictators, of which there were three uh, in total, that kind of controlled the city, have now you know disappeared and uh, hiding in the tunnels of the city, and into this power vacuum, the Invictus have returned, and uh, they have this revival in the same way that. As you said, you were speaking about the oligarchs and uh, and the new Russians, as they're known as. Um, and so, for the Invictus, it's a case of that they're they're re-establishing uh, dynastic houses and uh, seeking out elders that may still be uh, asleep somewhere in the city. And then, linked with this, you have um, I've got some stuff to do with the Ordo Dracul, who've basically been given the Undercity as their domain, so that the Ordo Dracul can do their research into worms, nests, and ghosts, and into anything else that's kind of strange. Um, And I'm kind of trying to work in a a body horror element into it, so I'm looking at, like, the influences, say, uh, you know, nuclear power and weapons and uh, the space program and what weird spirits or or supernatural biology has turned up and how that may have been uh, has become an issue for the vampires of the city. Um, and yeah, there's some really interesting flashpoints. I mean, uh, I've got some bullet points now on um, some about the ancient uh, ancient uh, cultures that used to be in Moscow and how there's there's possibly quite a lot of ghosts to do with that and entryways into the underworld and how that possibly relates to ancient uh, uh, Circle of the Crone cults as well. So, um, yeah, I'm up to 1480 with my notes on the history of Moscow and reading through it. So I found quite a few interesting bits here and there. Uh, And also I'm making a a, a big uh, point about how the Lancaster Sanctum are more themed around uh, the something that's on a, a is I think it's a bit of fan-made material I found for a uh, for a vampire lark, but it's uh, the idea of the uh, what's known as the Byzantine Creed. Mm-hmm. So it's the the Lancaster Sanctum based more upon Eastern Orthodox uh, Christianity, okay. and how they've perverted that to the Testament of Longinus. Mm. Interesting. Interesting, because one of the things I did want to have a look at as well is the uh, the rise and fall of Eastern Orthodoxy in in Russia. But I was going to come at it from a Malkavian point of view, I think. So. Oh, All right, yeah. That, that's just in my early stages at the minute. I'm still kicking that idea around. So. But uh, I think you guys can get the impression that we're working on something big. That you yeah. Can hopefully, have a look at soon. I mean, it's all just bloody bullet points right now. But even that's kind of interesting to look at. I think there's there's some ideas there to uh, work with. Um, James, got any other stuff you added in? or um, I've, I've not really done anything on Moscow yet. Um, I've mostly been kind of mulling over uh, Hamburg and trying to get my head around, um, around that. It also 
it also seems like I might be changing my group of players that it's aimed at as well. Um, I'm looking at maybe running games over Skype, considering I am now going to be leaving Germany. Yes. Um, and that'll be interesting, because I've not really run any games over Skype, but it'll be fun to play in, and so I can learn how... To, uh, obviously, we can learn from your mistakes, James, and... Uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, obviously, obviously, you know, it'll be good to... Yeah, I'm open to doing some Skype gaming, because, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get a gaming group and what we're moving around and so forth, and how easy it might be just to get some people together, you know, via Skype to do, do your gaming. Um, I think that's that's about it. That's that's the show, really. Um, all I can say is thank you for you two again for showing up and talking a whole load of crap about role playing. Um, no problem. <laughs> yeah. It's a um, and obviously, um, what else we've got to say? Uh, you can obviously get in contact with us with us at darkerdaysradio at gmail dot com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. We also have a Google Plus page. We also have a Posterous page uh, where we do a bit of blogging and reviews will go up uh, of any other things. Um, we also have a Twitter, which is Dark Days Radio. Um, and we also have a... I think that is all the social networks covered. Yes. Um... Ooh, what else can we say? Um, so we'll get some of this information up there in the show notes on the uh, when we post up this uh, podcast. Um, and one of the things we've got to look forward to, as I say, we've got part by the time of this is up, part two of Dark Ages should be out. So part three should be coming up soon, which covers the sects of uh, Dark Ages Vampire. Isn't that right, Steve? Yeah, that's right. We have a real cool. good look at all the uh, the major minor sects and uh, I think if I remember correctly that's the show that ran away with us so oh yeah I've already listened to um, part two which covered uh, the the paths which is really good because I think that's something that um, I think when we get around to it I'm looking forward to like seeing how we can use all that information to do uh, Requiem for the Dark Ages mm-hmm. I think that'd be a really cool kind of like um Again, a really cool kind of like document we could work on as a Darker Days project of how do you use all this stuff to create the Dark Ages through the Requiem lens? Um, that would be kind of neat. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? I know we've got another Dark, a- uh, like Dark Ages, another Darker Days show uh, being lined up with another exciting interview, I hope, because uh, we had the last show we had Matt McFarland on, and that was awesome. Um, yeah, that's about it, really. So, I bid you farewell, and, yeah, thanks for listening. 